So listen, um, we are moving into our third message on Romans. Uh, if you didn't listen to last week's message, I, I don't always feel, I mean, I think it's always good if you're in a church and you have a pastor who's trying to serve you uh, as imperfectly as I try to with the messages. I, I think it's good to always go back and listen to the message if you miss them, because I think although you can listen to a hundred million messages online, I do think there's something special in the relationship between pastors and, and, the, and the, the, the brothers and sisters in their church in, in the God gives grace in that dynamic um, that's unique to that church that you're in. And so though you can get better messages than I could ever preach from John Piper and Tim Keller, you don't get messages from the church where you're committed to and where God is at work. So I do think it's always good to go back and listen to those messages. But last week, I really felt a particular burden and I still feel that uh, way, that, that God is, is really trying to speak to our hearts um, about, what we're, about where we are in the book of Romans and, and the themes in it. So um, I wanna appeal to you to go back to last week's if you didn't miss it and if, if you're away this week, I will... <laughs> I guess you're not here, so you wouldn't know I will be making the appeal next week too, because I do feel like there's a, there's a particular burden that the Lord may have for us. And, and it, it, it will continue in a different way from last week to this week. Um, so, so we're in our, our third message in Romans. And, and as you guys know, last week, Paul explained who he is as an apostle, ap- apostle of the message of Jesus Christ, the son of God, whom he termed the son of God in power, risen from the dead. And that was our, our title last week was the son of God in power. And our title this week is the son of God in power in Paul. Last week was the son of God in power. We examined what that meant, uh, tried to get into the Greek and the themes that Paul was trying to bring to us there. And today we're going to talk about the son of God in power in Paul, because what we're going to see today is Paul getting personal with this church. It's a church of people that for all that he says, we should keep in mind, everything that we know about it is that he never met these people. Maybe he met a few of them here and there on his journeys, but this is not a church he's writing to that he planted. It's not a church he's writing to that he's ever visited. So he doesn't, most of these people are, are strangers to him. And, and so I want us to walk through the process, pr- this passage knowing that. We're going to draw out a few ap- applications as we go along. And then I'm going to bring in the rear of the message a big picture idea that I think is really important to not lose sight of, that we don't lose the force for the trees of, a <clears throat> of an interaction between Paul and these people that like we're going to see today. So verse by verse with some thoughts the long way and then a final big picture zoom out on, on, on the forest that we not miss for the trees that we're going to look at now. So verses eight through 11, I'll be reading. If you don't know, we're in Romans one and it's okay, Ed, we can catch up with, have you got the slides yet? Okay. So we're going to start with verses eight through 11. First, Paul says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I'm gonna read that one more time. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Let me pray. Lord, would you please anoint the preaching of your word with your Holy Spirit, that these would not just be words we listen to or words we can't pay attention to, but these would be words 
that your Holy Spirit speaks to us through. Words that become food for us. Food that cleanses. Food that strengthens. Food that brings clarity. Food that brings deep conviction. Food that brings joy. Lord, that even if it has to work over hours and days, it it blossoms into joy. As we see you better, serve you more deeply, love you more, trust you more. Would you please do this, Lord, for your people, including me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Paul starts out, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And specifically he mentions their faith becoming known. Rome is the capital of the world. And now the fact that there is a church in Rome that is real and is growing is bringing more attention to the gospel all over the world. Paul's life is gospel mission for God's saving work. There's no question for him on what he's supposed to do in the church. He's supposed to go and share the gospel again and again and again throughout the whole world. So this baby church at the center of the world, which is essentially the capital of the world, it fills his heart with thanksgiving as others learn that in the most famous city on the planet, Jesus Christ has come. But it's more than what this will do for people outside the gospel. Paul is thanking God that these people have faith. He is rejoicing in them. He's rejoicing for them. Faith is the most precious and foundational possession that you can have. It is by faith that we are saved. It is by faith that we are kept. It is by faith that we grow. And from faith in Jesus, everything else good and life-preserving in our life flows. So it's right that God is thanked for their faith because that's the most important and most foundational reality of their life. And because their faith is a gift from God. So God is the one who gives faith to be saved. That's why Paul is thanking him for their faith. He's rejoicing in their salvation through God's gracious gift of their faith. Now Paul says he prays unceasingly for them. And you guys have seen that before in Paul. Everyone's familiar. Most of us are familiar with pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean that literally every second Paul is praying for this church. But it does mean that he prays for them very, very, very frequently. It means that in, you know, the the mechanism of the Greek, that there's no extended amount of time that goes by. There's no, in other words, there's not a lot of time that goes by that Paul doesn't remember them and pray for them. They are on his heart all the time. They're on his tongue to God all the time. And Paul really wants them to know this is true. He says, God is my witness. God is my witness about this in verse nine, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He essentially is making a vow before God that his prayers for them are not real. And, and you know, do you ever go through that? Like, hey, would you pray for me? Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm praying for you. I mean, sometimes we'll write that on, to them on the Facebook or email, praying for you. When I do that, I, I'm trying more. <laughs> I'm trying more to be real with that. Like I prayed for you because I don't want to give the impression that, you know, I I read this request and now I'm just going around praying for you all the time throughout the day. So I'm trying to say I prayed for you, but it's just kind of, we say that thing. And sometimes you say, oh man, I'll be praying for you. And you just don't remember. And you, you just wanted them to, and sometimes you can feel like I want them to feel blessed. I want them to feel comforted, but you haven't yet really made the commitment in your heart that you're really going to do that. And cause it's just, an, it's a really nice thing to say. It makes you seem holy and caring. It makes them feel holy and cared for. And, and you, it doesn't happen. And that's a really bad thing. Like we shouldn't do that. Um, and, 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 and I want you, you know, I, I struggle because I do pray. I, I'm in a place in my life where I am trying to pray for you every week. I'm trying to pray for every single person in this room who's, I think, every, actually, I don't see any visitors today, especially on Mother's Day. And so I'm praying for every single one of them. And David and Alyssa need to be added to that list because they've been coming long enough to get prayed for. And, and I struggle because I really want you guys to know that. Like, 
there is a part of me in the Lord that wants to look you in the eye and say, I am praying for you. And I do do that, you know, but there's a fleshly part that, you know, wants you to think I'm great and awesome, but <laughs> because I'm not great and I'm not awesome. I mean, if you, I do other things besides prayer for you, like sin, but, but I do pray for you and, and it means something to me to pray for you. Like it increases my love for you. It increases my affection for you. It increases my, and, and, and I want you to pray for me. Like I'll send out texts throughout the week to a lot of you guys, please pray for my message because I desperately need it because I'm a sinner who struggles. So let's pray for each other. <laughs> Would you pray for me? I'm praying for you. Would you pray for one another? This is how God works. Paul's not just doing this as a custom that, you know, it's not like a handshake. Prayer in his mind is perhaps the most powerful thing that he can do for these people. And it's expression of his love for them. So he makes this vow because he doesn't want them to think he's just being colloquial about it. Praying for you. No, 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 no. I swear to God that you are always on my heart. That's what he's saying. I swear to God, you are always on my heart. I'm always praying for you. I want you to think about that. it's important for where we're going to go in this message. This guy has never met these people ever. And he says, I long to see you. I am praying for you all the time. You're always on my heart. I I want us to wonder like what is going on with this person? I swear I'm praying for you all the time. And he wants to make sure they know that though he hasn't been able to visit them yet, they mean so much to them, to, to him. And aside, this is also a good thing to mention something about prayer. Paul prayed and prayed and prayed this prayer, which was, God, would you please let me come to see these people? I really long to see them. I love them in Jesus already. I keep hearing about them and I already have a, can I come and see them? I want to strengthen them. It was a godly prayer. It was a really good desire he had. God had not said yes to this yet. Paul didn't know if God would ever say yes to this. He says, if by God's will, I might, you know, but he kept praying. He kept praying all the time for it. So you have good prayers You have good things you want. We don't always know if the prayer we're praying, God is going to say yes. There are certain things in scripture we know because of God's promise. We should not doubt. We need wisdom. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need strength to escape temptation. We need encouragement when we fail. Those are promises. You don't have to wonder if God's going to answer that promise you should believe those promises, honor God with faith because they're in his word. But there are other things that you and I want in our lives that are good things that we don't know if God is going to do. We should keep praying those things until God either convicts us that he's not going to do it or convicts us that it's not the right thing to do. You should keep praying for the salvation of your mom and dad, of your sons and daughters, of your brothers and sisters. We should keep praying. We should absolutely keep praying that God would increase our strength against the besetting sins in our lives. We should not stop praying for these things. And that's actually a prayer that we know God will answer at least by the end of our lives. So keep going with your prayers until God makes it clear that the things that you want so deeply that are good, he doesn't want you to pray for it anymore. (laughs) Or he makes it clear that by circumstance, he's not going to answer Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. When I read it like that, I feel immediately bad because that's not how Paul means it. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then he stops. This is really, really wonderful. Paul says, I want to bring some gift to you in the Lord. It doesn't say what it is. We don't know if it's like, I want to, I want to pray for the gift of healing over this, you know, person or the gift of prophecy to come upon this person. He doesn't tell us what the spiritual gift is, but he wants something good. It might be 
just love. He wants more love among them. He wants more patience among them. So he doesn't tell us what the gift is going to be. He just says, I want to pray, strengthen, encourage your faith. But then he stops and he says, I want a spiritual gift from you. I want stuff from you. So let's think about the, the, the wildness of the, the amazing reality of him asking for that, that he'd stop and say, but wait, I want something from you too. Okay. And here's why I say that's amazing. This is the apostle Paul. This is the apostle of Jesus Christ. Probably one of only 12 people in the universe for all time who will be forever pillars of the church of Jesus Christ. And they have a, they have a special role in the universe that we're not probably ever going to have. And, and they're not better than us or more loved by Jesus than us, but God chose them to be the 12. I believe that Paul replaced Judas. I'm not going to go into all that, but But these are the 12 who will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus says. The gospel of Jesus was revealed to this man by the risen Christ himself in person. I heard the gospel through my friend Ken and my dad in a car, and God did open my eyes. But Paul heard it from Jesus (laughs) post-resurrection when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Paul raises people from the dead. That's what he does. He raises them from the dead. A guy falls asleep in one of his messages, which I can totally sympathize with. The guy is dead, two floors down, however many felt. Paul goes over and he prays over him and the guy raises from the dead. That's what Paul does. Paul speaks in tongues. It's a valid gift that it is amazing and spirit given more than anyone, he says to the Corinthians. Paul has authority from Jesus over all churches. He has authority from Jesus over every church. When Paul writes letters, he is a brilliant thinker, by the way, just naturally speaking. He's a genius writer. Secular people know that. But when he writes letters, they become anointed by the Holy Spirit and turn into scripture which will be studied and prayed over and guide Christians and guide churches for thousands of years to come. In terms of people who live or ever will live, Paul may be, in terms of people, not the Lord, they, they, he may be at the very top of greatness. He might be, I don't know, but I would put him in the top 10 if I certainly was grading. In comparison, the people he's writing to are relatively new Christians. They don't have Bibles. Maybe they have some Old Testament scrolls. They don't know as much about the Bible as you do. They don't know as much about Mark or Matthew or John as you do. Many of them will be very immature, very lowly educated and very young in the faith. Many would be poor and and lowly. They would be part of a Roman system of slavery and not highly educated. None of that matters to Paul. It doesn't matter. He doesn't look down on them. He cherishes them. He doesn't think that He's the one who's got something to bring and they're just measly unlearned Christians. What matters to Paul and what should matter to us is that these people know Jesus. Jesus is really at work in them. They're trying to follow Jesus from the lack of rebukes in this letter. We can assume this is a pretty earnest church. They really do want to follow Jesus. Paul knows that. So he knows not only are they a treasure because they're in Christ, but they're also capable of richly blessing him spiritually because they're trying to follow Jesus. It doesn't matter if they're three days in Jesus or if they're 30 years in Jesus. Never underestimate, Paul would say, the grace that can come through anyone who really loves Jesus and really is trying to follow him. It doesn't matter if, if you've been a believer 25 years and they came to Christ yesterday. God works grace from one believer to another. And you older saints like me, you know what it's like to meet someone who's been saved a few months and they just school you. Like they just school you. They, they teach you through their zeal. They may have a whole bunch of bad ideas that need a lot of good 
education and reading, but there's a zeal in them and a fire in them to live for Jesus that just reminds you of where you should be. Reminds you of who you should be in the Lord and who you are in the Lord. So we need to remember this. The deepest spiritual grace we receive from brothers and sisters does not come. It doesn't come primarily from their intelligence. I'm talking about spiritual invisible grace. It doesn't come from their intelligence, though God can use that. It doesn't come from their money, though God can use that. It doesn't come because they're more popular or better looking. It comes from the Holy Spirit really living in someone because they're really drawing close to Jesus. And that gift of being with them, it draws you closer to Jesus. You can't help when someone is really, really drawing close to Jesus, you spend enough time with them. It just is contagious. It's like a really good disease. So I just want to encourage you from this, make it your social ambition to stay close to Jesus so you can bring spiritual strength to others because he will work strength to others as you stay close to him and make it your social ambition to stay near those who are near to Jesus. He doesn't just want you with those who are near to Jesus. He wants you in godly ways. He wants you everywhere you can go in the city and restaurants and bars and joining this thing and on the softball team or wherever you can do in your job at work. He wants you talking and befriending people, but you need to have people very close to you who are very close to Jesus. You do. You need to have people very close to you who are very close to Jesus. That's why we have DRs. That's why we have care groups or community groups. And we're going to talk in the next few weeks, I hope, about kind of a little shuffling of nomenclature and tightening of philosophy about our fellowship methodologies. I'd like to see more of you guys in DRs. I'd like to see more of you guys in community groups so that we can stay near to Jesus and help each other do that. But however it looks, there's no one size fits all commandment about what fellowship could look like. You should be staying near to Jesus through staying near to people who are near to Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul has been prevented from getting there. We've gone over that before. He doesn't explain. It's probably from the context, his sense of God's will. He says that by God's will, I might come to you. So he just hasn't felt released by the Lord's direction over his life that the gospel mission will allow him the space yet to go to this church. So there's a lesson here too, though. Paul's saying, I love you people. I really want to be with you. I haven't been able to get to you yet probably because God's will hasn't made it clear. And here's the lesson that is universally true in this little portion. We love others most. We love others the most when we love God first. We love others the most when we love God first. Another way to put it is we love others the best when we love God the most. We love others the best we can when we love God the most. The priority of Paul's relationship with Jesus doesn't compete with his love for these believers. The priority of Paul's relationship with Jesus fuels his love for these believers. Let me say that again. The priority of Paul's relationship with Jesus doesn't compete with his love for these believers. The priority of Paul's relationship with Jesus fuels his love for them. If any of you guys have seen, some of you are in, some of you have been in uh, close friendships, close relationships, marriages, where someone is really fallen in love with Jesus and, and the other person is not. And the other person, I had this happen to me with with several friendships, but, but one of my closest ones. It was very hard because I never felt, when I came to Christ, I never felt more love in my life for this person than I did. It was like God had given me real love for this, for this person for the first time in my life in comparison. 
I had so much love for them. But they were so repelled by my love for Jesus, they couldn't receive it. It was an aroma of death, Paul would call to them. I just couldn't love them the way that they saw love, but, but I loved them more than ever. And they would appeal to me, man, can you get over this stuff? I can't wait till you just grow up and get over this thing. And I just want to encourage you, don't worry that your pursuit and your love for Jesus is going to somehow obscure your love for this person. It's not. It's going to, it's going to deepen your love for this person, the kind of love they really need to receive, whether they want to or not. So don't be intimidated, confused, or bullied. Keep following Jesus with all your heart and watch him do more for your love for those people than you would ever have if if you weren't following in with him. When you and I move towards loving Jesus Christ as we should, we can't help but move towards loving others as we should. It's just a byproduct of it really happening with Jesus is that you really want to love other people. This doesn't mean that, I'm sorry, this does mean that our affections for the brothers and sisters, our affections for the saints, it really is a reflection of the reality of our connection to Jesus. Our our affection for brothers and sisters in Christ is really a really good barometer of our connection to Jesus. No matter what we say about how much we love Jesus, if we're not loving one another really actively, there's a real weakness, deficit, or lack of love for the Lord going on. And, And this is something else it means. It means that Jesus is more eager than you know to bring reconciliation where hatred or hurt has taken hold in the relationships in his family. He is more eager than you know to bring reconciliation where hatred and hurt has taken hold. And this doesn't mean we can always trust one another. Trust and forgiveness are very different. I've said that to you guys many times. I, I love my mother. I grew up with her loving me, but I, I could not trust her with some of the most important things to me because of um, her struggles with, um, with her struggles. But, but pursuing love, pursuing forgiveness is not optional if we're going to follow a savior who poured out everything he had to reconcile us to God. It doesn't work. Verse 14, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am under obligation. This is a really strange way to put this. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul's gospel mission doesn't have any barriers. We can all be sensitive and excited about that. Paul has no concern for ethnicities, genders, the rich or the poor, black or white, the educated, the educated, the wise and the fool. It doesn't matter. Paul says, though I'm commanded by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, notice how he phrases it here. I am under obligation to these people. I'm under obligation to the fools. I'm under obligation to those who think that they're super well-educated. I'm under obligation to the people who dropped out in freshman year in high school. I'm under obligation to the Yale PhD. I'm under obligation to them all. He has to preach the gospel to them. Many of Paul's hearers would reject him and hate him. Some would imprison him, ultimately behead him. And Paul was smart. If you follow his life in Acts, you'll see that he's really smart and careful about conflict. He didn't let people abuse him when he could find a way out. He made secret escapes. He appealed to the police of his day for safety when he could. When he realized he wasn't getting anywhere, he would often wash his hands of the situation and move on. But, but look at this. Look at the foundation of his heart towards people. Like, this is my heart towards people, Paul says. This is what I want for all people. He says, I feel that I'm obligated to them. He doesn't say I'm obligated by God to preach to them, though that was true. He puts himself as a servant to not just God, but to them. He says, I'm I'm indebted to them. He saw himself in this phrasing as their debtor, like as if he owed them $5,000. That's how he's talking about people who don't know Christ and who will reject Christ. In a manner of speaking, Paul is saying, I owe these people the gospel. I owe the gospel to you. 
He looked at the strangers in the streets and because of the call God had put on his life, he, he, he said to himself, I owe you the gospel. I'm, I'm indebted to, to you. I'm indebted to you. This week, I saw a lot of Facebook arguments as folks fought back and forth about the abortion judgment and the, what the Supreme Court might hand down. I saw lots of arguing between people who were certainly Christians and non-Christians about this leaked draft that you probably have all heard of by now. And I participated in some of these arguments myself. And as I considered this attitude in Paul after participating in those arguments, I asked myself, what if before any interaction, interactions with any of these people, I said to myself, I'm indebted to these people I'm about to post to or Facebook argue with. I'm indebted to these people to present Jesus to them as helpfully for them as possible. I'm indebted not to win an argument with these people, though that's a byproduct. <laughs> Having a good argument, standing your ground, telling the truth. But no, I'm indebted to these people to present Jesus to them as helpfully as possible. I'm sad to say it would have changed the tone of a lot of factoid academic arguing I did. So, you know, I learned from my mistake. Let, let's confess our hostility towards the world. Not as a great thing, not as anything to be proud of, but as something to be sad about, to be ashamed of. Let's confess our hostility towards the world when we get into these arguments with radical political people and radical demonic ideologies because I really do see demonic ideologies taking hold. I mean, it wouldn't be, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but, but what does God want me to do with those people? Like win an argument first and foremost? Like explain why they're just wrong and get out of my, this is so ridiculous and you're so dumb and no, it's not what, they don't need help with that. They've got a million other people on the other side of any political fence they have, if they're on social media to do that with. What they probably have very few of is anybody who in the context of these debates about abortion or critical race theory or gender dysphoria, someone who's really just trying to help them say the truth, but to think to themselves as helpfully as possible, I want to present the truth about these things. And if I get chewed out, if I get crushed, I'm going to leave as gracefully as I can. I don't have to lie. I don't have to be a doormat, but I'm not going to hit back like they're hitting me because I want to present Jesus to them as helpfully as possible. I want them to say, wow, that person was kind as they could be, even though they disagreed with me. Lord, help me with that. Help me with that. Help me remember this. I'm under obligation and indebted to, to show Jesus to people as helpfully as possible. Okay. Okay. So some, that was some application. Now this is where I want to zoom out. This is the back end of this message. So Lord, please give us energy to hear a little bit longer. Listen. I want us to ask a question after looking at all this stuff here, Paul's personal remarks. I want us to ask a question. I've already kind of spoiled it. I want you to ask this question. What in the world happened to this guy, Paul? I don't think I know very many of anyone like him alive today. I don't know if you guys do. What happened to him? And the reason why I want to ask you what happened to him is, is because I know a little bit about what he was like before. And so do most of you. We just looked at what he's like now in Romans 1. I want to go back just quickly to, Rome, to Acts 7 and 8 and talk about what he was like then. This is Saul of Tarsus. We first meet Saul of Tarsus, before he's Paul, the apostle, we meet Saul of Tarsus, same guy. And we meet him in Acts 7 and 8. And, and here's, here's how we meet him. Here's the context. There's a guy named Stephen. He's not an apostle, but he's really close. 
He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is super godly guy. He's a wonderful preacher, wonderful servant to the church. He's a, and he is defending himself from very, very dangerous accusations of slander. His life's in the balance. And he's defending himself before these Jewish leaders who want to murder him. And in his defense, he moves into a pretty fiery sermon. He's losing his fear of what's going to happen to him. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he, like an Old Testament prophet, he actually starts to accuse these senior leaders of the Jewish nation of betraying and murdering the Messiah. And they are infuriated with him. They're flush with anger. They, they shake their fists. Acts says, Acts 7 says, they shake their fists at him. And then it says, Stephen, full of the spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus. He had a vision. He had a super spiritual experience in the tail end of this sermon he's giving. And he sees Jesus, it says, standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And pay attention to that. Standing at the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, these leaders, he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. They just killed Jesus for saying the same thing. When Caiaphas said, tell us right now, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man coming in the clouds of glory. Both Jesus and Stephen are referring to Daniel 9 and Daniel's vision in the Old Testament prophecies of the son of man. Of Daniel calls him one like the son of man. This is so good for us. This is Daniel speaking 500 years before Jesus. And he has a vision. In his vision, he sees one like a son of man. In other words, this isn't a a non-corporal spirit being who just has spirit property. No, I saw a human being coming on the clouds of heaven, Daniel says, and all people of every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiped him, and he was given glory and honor. This is Daniel, centuries before Christ. Stephen repeats the same thing, and they are over come with rage. They, it says they close their ears. They start shouting blasphemy. I'm sure, I don't know. It doesn't say what they were shouting, but I'm sure it was blasphemy, blasphemy, kill him, kill him. And they run at Stephen. They grab him violently. It says they drag him through the streets in a mob. They drag him out of the city to murder him. And they're still full of rage. They pick up heavy stones and they start to throw them at Stephen. They've probably backed him into a space he can't get out of. And they pick up really big rocks and they start throwing them at Stephen really hard. And Stephen's hit with the rocks one by one by one. He's hit in the ribs, in the knees. I mean, it doesn't say this, but we can just assume because of what's going to happen to him, he's hit everywhere. Ribs, knees, in the face, in the eyes, in the teeth, in the skull. Stone by stone, his bones are breaking, his organs are probably getting compromised and broken out, torn up, and his life flickers away. And he falls down and he crouches, bleeding internally, concussions, fatal blows, and he cries out before he dies, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He falls to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he dies. And Acts tells us that right there with all these men, in total agreement with all they were doing, is a man named Saul. He's holding all their cloaks so they don't have to get their clothes dirty while they murder this man for believing in Jesus. And then we see in the following chapter that Saul goes everywhere with ravenous bloodlust. From house to house, he's dragging men and women into prison for their faith. This is Saul going from house to house, dragging them out. And there's no question about what he wants, what he's after. He's not looking to find them or to get them to stop preaching the name of Jesus. He's not looking to silence them for preaching Jesus' name. That's not what he wants. No, it says that Saul is eager to kill the Christians. That's what it says in the Bible. 
in Acts 7 and 8. He's eager to kill them. Acts 9 tells us that he goes to the high priest. and It's in 9 too. He goes to the high priest and it says, quote, he's breathing threats and murder and he wants to hunt outside Jerusalem. He wants to move the hunt for the Christians outside Jerusalem and get them back to the holy city so that they can be slaughtered. That's what he wants. By Paul's own description, he is a man of violence. That's what he calls himself in the New Testament, a man of bloodshed, a man of violence. He's a religiously obsessed murderer. We might think of the ISIS leaders throwing people off rooftops, taking videos of beheadings and showing them everywhere, saying, this is our God with the head of some saint full of righteous, self-righteous hatred. Murderers with a coating of demonic religion that makes them feel really holy. That's Saul. That's Paul. And now we read this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. For God is my witness how I pray for you constantly. Asking God to let me come and be with you so we can strengthen each other in Jesus. For I long to see you. I'm indebted to all people. And if we just do a brief survey of other passages, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's another vow. I yearn for you people with the affection of Christ Jesus. This man breathing out murder, exhaling violence and bloodshed, longing to slaughter these people. My little children, Galatians 4:19, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, my dearly beloved, Philippians 4:1. eager and glad about these stones crushing Stephen's ribs. Here he is in 1 Thessalonians 2. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you had become so very dear to us. Paul hoping to kidnap and crucify as many Christians as he could stands before King Agrippa and Felix, I believe. And one of them asks him, are you trying to convert me too? As he sits in chains for the gospel. And Paul says to him, oh, I wish I could make you just like me, except for these chains. That you wouldn't have to wear these chains, but otherwise, yes, I want you to be a Christian. What happened to this man? What happened to Saul the terrorist? Last week, this week, we've considered this idea that Jesus has all power and authority over all things. We saw that Jesus rose from the dead with authority over all things in heaven and earth. Once he had paid for all the sins of the world, God the Father conferred on Jesus full authority over all the universe. Remember, as Jesus appeared to Stephen, as he's dying, where does Stephen see him? Standing at the right hand of God. This vision not only means Jesus loved Stephen to the last as he died and received him into the kingdom, because it absolutely does mean that Jesus was there for Stephen emotionally, for sure. It also means that Jesus is enthroned. That's what they were so mad about, that Jesus is enthroned at the place of God. A man, the son of man, is sitting in God's seat with God's permission. Jesus Christ has no rivals. 
He has no equals. Saul of Tarsus, and more importantly, the sin and the hardness of Saul of Tarsus were no match for Jesus Christ. Saul took decades being trained to be the Pharisee of Pharisees and learning how to hate Christians. Do you know how long it took Jesus to change his heart? And I know you're all wondering right now, why not me? Like that, right? We don't want to pretend Paul was perfect at that point. But one day for you and for me, absolutely like that. Because what happened to Paul is that Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all authority and all power in heaven and earth, chose to reveal himself to Paul while Paul was on his way to murder Jesus' people. That's when it happened. He's going along to go murder. He wasn't having lunch or taking a retreat or at synagogue. He's on his way on horses to go murder some Christians. And Jesus stops him and changes his heart like that. I'm not going to read Paul's conversion story. I read it in the last few weeks. But suffice to say, Jesus used his authority over all things. And by virtue of his own blood, he had the right to pour out his forgiveness for sinners over Paul, including Religious terrorists like Paul. Jesus forgave all of Paul's sins in that moment. And having taken the punishment already for all of Paul's murderous thoughts and acts onto himself on the cross. And having been crucified for all that Paul did to hate and kill and murder. And having defeated Paul's sin through this act of incredible mercy. He also had the authority to give Paul a brand new heart. And that's the heart that we see in the passage today. Paul isn't just writing Romans. He's proving it with his own love for these people. He's not just telling them the gospel. He's living it out in front of them in the words that he's saying to people he's never met. And so what what I feel most burdened to remind you and myself from this text, brothers and sisters, what I feel most burdened about is very much connected, like I said to last week's message, that you come to confess with me and others today, that that we are able to confess by God's grace, by seeing this before us, that nothing in our lives is a match for Jesus Christ. That there is no sin, there is no trial, there is no weakness, there is no temptation that is a match for Jesus Christ. That his mercy reigns in authority over your sin. That his patience reigns in authority over your failings. That his strength reigns in authority over your weaknesses and exhaustions. That his commitment to never abandon you reigns in authority over your fear and over your despair. And I know you guys, I know that this room in our church as small as is full of people who are going through and have been through protracted seasons of great trial. And I can't tell you why Jesus is allowing that to continue, but I can tell you this. He knows what he's doing and he has authority to allow the trial to continue. And there's not one inch of that trial that's not under his authority. And we don't know. He hasn't told us everything he's doing. And we can't judge him because Though we don't know everything he's doing, we know that we don't know. We have an escape hatch called conviction of limited understanding that allowed Job to say, okay, you're right. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. This is awful. But who am I to judge you? Where was I when you laid the foundations of the earth? I wasn't there. Please take this away. But if you don't, I can't judge you. But it's not just that humbling conviction. It's encouragement. I I want us to be encouraged because 
He's reigning over everything for you. He's not just reigning over everything. He's reigning over everything for you. For you. He's ruling the heavens and the earth for you. He's thinking about you. He's doing this for you. And and you need to believe that if you're going to keep fighting, if you're going to keep walking with him. You need to believe that, that he's ruling over all things, but he's not ruling over them against you, but for you. Listen, there's a race for us to run. We're not fatalists. God has decreed what will be, so I'll just watch TV. There's a battle for us to fight. There are prayers to keep praying. There are Bibles to keep reading. There are people to keep witnessing to and begging God for windows and opportunities to keep talking to them about Jesus. There is sin to keep fighting. I I know that. I know that. I know that. I don't want to get into the weeds about how to do any of that today. There's other messages for that. Today, I want us to consider the miracle of Paul of Tarsus and remember that our fight is foundationally and primarily not a fight of spiritual duties, as important as they are, but it is a fight to believe that Jesus Christ is the risen son of God with all authority over heaven and earth, including all authority over everything in our lives, including our own sin. In Ephesians 1, and we are landing the plane, we are ending the message. In Ephesians 1, Paul has a burden for the church in Ephesus. I've never understood this passage, and I don't fully understand it at all, but I've never come as close as I am now to understanding this passage. In Ephesians 1, Paul has a burden for the church, and I feel like it's very similar to the burden that God has for us if my spiritual antennas are right. Paul prays that God would open the eyes of these Christians. They're not unsaved people. They're Christians. They've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ Jesus. They're really doing well too. Ephesus at this point is a church that's doing pretty well. And Paul is praying that God would open their eyes. I I think it's doing pretty well. I, I, I just realized I'm thinking of Thessalonica. But anyway, God is praying that these born again Christians would have their eyes open, that they would see something. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open, might be enlightened, that you might see something. And here's among several things, what he wants them to see. This is what he wants them to see. He says, we can put it up there, Ephesians 1, if you have it, if you have it, Ed. Yes, he prays that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know. Let's say this together really slow. Here's what he wants them and here's what God wants you and I to see. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Stop. Who's the power? Who has the power? Who's got the power? Jesus. Who's it for? Who does Jesus want to use his power for? Yeah, yeah. Let's find out what level power, like is it level one power? Is it level 11 power? <laughs> Let's find out what level power that Jesus wants to use and, has, and wants to use it, it towards your life, towards your struggle. Let's see what level it is. According to, that means this power is this level. <laughs> According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places Next slide. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Who did he give Jesus to? The guy who's in charge of the universe and the stars and the galaxies and every sin and every day and every bird that falls down. Who did God give Jesus to? To the, who are you? The church, which is his body. You're not just something he gives. You're his very body. 
which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, we're not quite the fullness yet, but we will. In God's mind, we are, and we will one day be. So the power level is, the, is above all rule and authority, <laughs> above all things, every name, everything that is, was, or will be. That's the power level. In other words, it's Jesus. And, and who he is, his person, and all the power that he has is committed to you. He's seated above all things for you so that nothing, nothing, no sin, no guilt, no fear, no anxiety, no depression, no despair, no marriage breakdown, no job problem, no health problem, no terminal cancer, no car accident, no, from the other side of the fence, no temptation from getting a lot of money or or the appeal that you're getting from the applause of others who suddenly love you because of all these great things you're doing at work or at school. None of that would be able to take you out of his hands and destroy you. That's what the one who rules all things is committed to do, to make sure that none of it can destroy you. Because without him, all those things would destroy you. but he's greater than it all. He reigns over it all so that you will not be spiritually destroyed, but delivered and prospered. So I want to ask you this morning, if by God's grace, you can look at the life of Saul of Tarsus and recognize who he was and who he is now, as we saw him today, will you see God taking a man like Paul from murder and violence and dragging women through the dirt to prison so they can be murdered with rocks, pounding on them mercilessly. mercilessly. Can you see Jesus taking that man and with all of his authority, Paul, not Paul's authority, but all of Jesus' authority, destroying those chains of anger and hatred that imprison that man and setting him free to love and to pour himself out and to talk to you today, 2,000 years later, and to talk to millions of Christians probably today in Pauline epistle sermons, and to say to the very people he was trying to murder with all of his heart, God is my witness how I long to be with you all. So can we see him reigning over, not just Paul, but reigning over you and all those you love, just like he reigned over Paul. For, for, for this is true for those you love, your lost family members and your neighbors and lifelong friend who reject the gospel. I, I can't promise you they're gonna get saved. That is up to God. But I can promise you that they are no match for the reigning Jesus Christ. And that God cares about them and he cares about your prayers for them. And he has all power and authority. And there's mystery in the sovereignty of God and responsibility of people. They're both true, but... But, but as we close, I just want to ask us to spend a few moments in prayer. And, and there's three things I just want to bring for you to pray about. Hopefully they're simple enough to understand. Can we put them up, Ed? First, just spend some time in prayer, just saying to the Lord, would you reveal any place in my life where I need to acknowledge again, Jesus, you are greater than this. Some trial, some sin battle. You've gotten tired of the trial. You've gotten tired of the sin battle and you're beginning to say to yourself, the Bible's a really nice book with a lot of really good thoughts. I'm sure it's true at some point for some people somewhere and it'll be true for me someday. But right now, you're functionally saying to yourself, this is much bigger than Jesus. Because your despair, your hopelessness, your resignation, you're giving into it. It's just saying, he's not greater. It's too big for me. So would you ask God to show you any place you need to confess that Jesus is Lord over that thing? Over that thing, that trial, that struggle. And then ask God, may Jesus' authority and power bring his good rule into that place. I talked to you guys last week. I don't know if I told everybody, but I told some of you guys. I feel like God is putting his finger on my phone addiction, looking at social media, being on Facebook, just... And, and, I, and I got to a place and battling it with this week where I was discouraged and, and I just realized I am I'm not believing that God is bigger than this. It, it isn't just that I'm 
I'm being sinful and, and distracted and letting myself run into those places of distraction and looking at Facebook and the abortion, you know, wars and that was true. But there was also underneath all that, a lie I was believing. This is too big for me. It's too hard that Jesus isn't reigning over this. And so I can only say, as I've been confessing, Jesus, you're greater. I, I feel a release of greater strength from the spirit as I'm honoring what's true, which is he's greater. And so just ask him, Lord, would your authority and power bring your good rule into that place in my life that's disordered, whatever it might be for you. Maybe it's fear of man. You're at work with plenty of gospel opportunities to talk and you can't imagine speaking the name of Jesus to these people. Just say, no, Jesus, you're greater than my fear of man. Please bring your rule and your authority into that place. I don't know what it is. That's the point of you praying, not me continuing to preach. Number three, show me how I'm to participate in, in your good rule coming into that place. There will, there will be more prayers to pray. There will be, maybe there'll be some verses to look at and to start to meditate on and bring into your arsenal of the Bible. Just start saying, this is true, Lord. You know, for me, it's uh, right now, it's um, all toil brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. What does all my talking on Facebook do? It leads only to poverty. I mean, if it's in its place, it's in its place, that's okay. But when it starts to bleed into other places, and so I'm trying to remember that again and again. But, but, but really number one is the biggest thing today. It's not all the weeds of, of what you, you will be called to do, which is true, but it's number one that's on my heart, that where are you unwilling to say in your heart, Jesus, you're Lord over this, you're Lord. So let's just take um, a few minutes of prayer.